Hello, and welcome to You Should Hear This, a podcast for the everyday association professional. I'm Chris Beeman, your host. Are there times in your career when you started to feel like a fraud at your own skill set, afraid of being, in quotes, called out? Have there ever been times when you dismissed any form of positive feedback you received or blamed your accomplishments on just pure luck? You may have been experiencing imposter syndrome and never realized it. According to insights provided by marketing research technology firm Innovate MR, 65% of professionals today suffer from imposter syndrome. We've actually touched on this topic before in a previous episode two years ago where our former host, Nick Estrada, sat down with Brandon Craig and Alicia Skulamowski. I recommend going back to listen to that episode as it's a different perspective, but on the same topic. Our guest today will walk us through imposter syndrome, provide us insight on ways to overcome it, and so much more. Nicole Alspa-Williams is a senior lecturer at the Kelly School of Business. Nicole teaches in the Compass program, Kelly's Student Talent Talent Management. She also serves as faculty advisor for Kelly's first student mental health group, Balance, at Kelly, where she enjoys helping their student leaders work to end the stigma surrounding mental health with Kelly-wide events such as Lights for Life and Balance Week. As a counselor, her passion is helping clients increase their life satisfaction by teaching strategies to reduce their anxiety, adjust to life changes, get past imposter syndrome, and increase the meaning and happiness in their lives. Something we could all use. Outside of work, you can find Nicole, camera in hand, as a serious hobbyist photographer, knitting her latest project, playing Uber driver for her tween and teen, or making the perfect cup of chai. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's great to see you again. So to get us started, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Yeah. After I earned a Bachelor of Business from Kelly, it was not called Kelly back then in the olden days. It was just the IU School of Business. But after earning my Bachelor's in Business, I spent 10 years in the business world in sales, marketing, corporate training, all in the dental distribution, publishing, and environmental fields, mostly on the East Coast. About five years into that, I returned to IU and earned my Master of Science and a degree called an Education Specialist in Mental Health Counseling. I worked for many years as a career counselor at the IU Career Development Center. Then I served for several years as the Director of Alumni Career Services at the IU Alumni Association. Then I moved into my current role 10 years ago, as you said, teaching Kelly Compass, which is our student talent management program. Um, and also, as you said, I serve as the faculty advisor for our student mental health group. A few years ago, I became licensed as a licensed mental health counselor. And earlier this year, I opened a private counseling practice where I help people who are struggling with anxiety, depression, imposter experiences, and career challenges. So this topic is right up my alley. And I love that. So you just used a term and, and I'd love for you to touch on it you know, with this next question, and that is imposter experience, because I think we've used the term syndrome to date, you know, in all of the promotions around this and also the, the intro. So for our audience listening, you know, could you describe in your own words what imposter syndrome is? What does it mean? Yeah, and I do prefer to call it an imposter experience because I will get into this a little bit later, but it's it's such a common thing that happens. I guess we can just talk about it. It's such a common thing that it happens that, you know, why are we calling it a syndrome, which to me makes me think of a disorder, which makes me think of a diagnosis, which if 
so many of us, up to 82% of us are experiencing this, then why not call it an experience since it's so common? So I do prefer to call it an imposter experience. And the the way that I, the simplest way of describing it is when you have self-doubt and you have a fear of being found out as a fraud. And I definitely think, you know, to your point, I, I'm just thinking about a syndrome might suggest a treatment or something, but it also would suggest that once you find your way out of it, it could possibly never return. But that's not the case, right? We can be in and out of it. Absolutely. And it's a continuum. It, it can be something as easy as, you know, do I, uh, do I have something important to say in this meeting and second guessing yourself all the way to crippling to the point that you can't go further in whatever you're trying to do because you're so afraid that you don't know enough to do it. Interesting. So there's there's varying degrees of the experience and how it will affect us, you know, potentially daily, but it also could be something that could be maybe more systemic within us that might be driving procrastination or just feeling of self-doubt more daily, you know, on a regular basis. Yeah. And, and once you realize it for what it is, you know, I, it was all the way up until just probably a couple of years ago that I just thought all the feelings I, I was having was just a lack of self-confidence. And I'm like, how can I be this age with this many degrees working in the top 10 business school and have all this self-doubt about myself? But then I started reading more and, you know, we've seen a lot more about imposter syndrome and I'm going to use that terminology because that's the common terminology. We, we've seen that so much more here lately in the past couple of years. And, and once I realized that that's what I was dealing with, it helped me, you know, just being able to put a name to it. And then, you know, I went through kind of a, a self-help program, if you will. I took a class on it and going through that really helped me see it for what it was. And once you recognize it, then you can kind of just write it off like, oh, there's that imposter experience again, and then allows you to center back and work on the things that that you value. There's and, you know, I'm, I'm curious about any any populations of people who might be experiencing this at a higher rate. And, and you know, there's studies and research out there, according to insights actually provided by Innovate MR. There are studies that show 75% of women executives are affected by imposter experience. We're going to change the name, Nicole, you yes. and I on this podcast. Yes, we will. What, you know, what, what do you think is driving this number to be so high? I mean, that's three out of four women executives. Well, I, you know, as I referred to earlier, the statistic I typically use is, is came from a peer-reviewed study in the Journal of General Internal Medicine. That says that up to 82% of us experience imposter syndrome. And they do identify that ethnic minority groups are more likely to experience it. I also came across a, an HBR, Harvard Business Review article that came out actually a couple of years ago that says, stop telling women they have imposter syndrome. And the author talked about how imposter syndrome started back in, was first coined back in 1978. And it turned the universal feelings that we all have of discomfort, of second guessing ourselves, of mild anxiety in the workplace, and turned it into a diagnosis, especially for women. But that study that created the idea of imposter syndrome didn't look at the systemic biases that were surrounding, especially back in the 70s, 
women in the workforce. And so, you know, because it can stem from feelings of not belonging, I haven't mentioned that yet, but that that is a big trigger of imposter syndrome or imposter experience is feeling that you don't belong. You know, very often women and minority executives look around the leadership table and it could be the first time they're at that table and they don't see people who look like them. And that can drive feelings of discomfort and anxiety. So, you know, it does. We've talked about how much it affects women and we not mean just you and me, we, the greater we talking about this. Uh, But it's funny because I teach a a class session on this in my semester long class. And it's mostly male students who email me after class. They don't come up and talk after class because, you know, that would be showing weakness or whatever. But they'll email me after class to say, oh, my gosh, I've been experiencing these symptoms for a while, but I didn't know that it had a name. So I think we really talk about it affecting women, but I think it's affecting men almost as much. They just don't hear it as much since it's um, the messaging seems to be targeted at women. And I wonder about the, you have me wondering about, you know, the sense of belonging and as a there's there's some personal bias coming into this question because as a younger as a younger male you know i feel like i've experienced it and i guess i've always uh, and still experiencing actually i mean as as host of this podcast you know it leaves me wondering why the heck would they want me to do this i have no skills at whatever but you know it's great thanks thanks nicole so it 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 does leave me wondering though about this sense of vulnerability to be you know, I'm, I'm not even sure I know how to describe it, but as, you know, as someone who's younger, you know, you mentioned the sense of belonging as someone who's younger, I don't always see myself in some of the, uh, you know, at some of the decision making levels that I'm a part of in the professional workplace. And so that leaves me wondering about, is it, does that make me feel more vulnerable that because I don't see people like me, it's, it's sort of furthering this sense of ex- imposter experience because I don't have any allies in this room. And so that's just kind of a personal thought that's that's striking me as you're talking. But could you could you describe the feeling for, you know, our listeners who may be wondering is this is this me or 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 just in general what is someone, you know, I manage I I supervise people who I feel like may be experiencing this. Could you articulate the feeling that someone has when they're experiencing this this imposter feeling? Sure. I, I know it well since I I experience it on the daily. No, I'm just kidding. I'm exaggerating, not quite on the daily. But no, we've got, you know, we I already mentioned those those feelings of self-doubt when you're when you feel like you're like you can't do it. Whatever it is you're facing, you feel like you can't do it. You know, that fear of being found out, a fear of being unmasked as incompetent, afraid that people are gonna think that you don't know what you're doing, a feeling of that you can't replicate past successes. Um, And that actually hit me this morning because just last week I did an interview with WFIU down here in Bloomington. Everybody told me it did great. I couldn't bring myself to listen to it, but everybody told me it was really good. And so when I'm when I'm getting ready this morning to do this, I'm like, oh my gosh, am I going to be able, am I going to screw it up? Am I going to be able to do as well as I did on Friday? And so, you know, that imposter experience, I was having one of those this morning. I think you mentioned perfectionism earlier or procrastination. Which did you say? Yeah, procrastination. Because I, 
and and uh, honestly that came from personal experience because you know if it if as a perfectionist if i don't feel like i can do the best job in the moment i do feel like i tend to procrastinate because i want it to be just right and procrastination and perfectionism do go hand in hand very very often and perfectionism is is a big piece of imposter experience as well because it can keep you working many hours past when a normal, and you can't see me, but I've got air quotes going here, what a normal person would stop working. Like I've seen it in myself when I'm right, I, I could spend an hour on an email that's going to like a dean or somebody higher than me, and I don't want them to judge me or I don't want to say something the wrong way. That's something, you know, when, when you're doing something like that, that could tell you that that you're that you're in the throes of of an imposter experience. You know the idea that you can't start something new until you're an expert. That's a big one. That's what ta- told me and made me helped me figure out that I was dealing with an imposter experience because when I I've been licensed for years, but I have been so intimidated about starting my private practice. Um, because I didn't know it all. Um, but if you think about, can we ever know it all about any topic? But to me, it was like, if I don't know how to handle somebody that's schizophrenic, if I don't know how to handle somebody who is has bipolar disorder, who's borderline personality disorder, if I don't know how to handle those things, I can't start. But what I was able to tell myself to do is to break it down and really look at the clients that I want to help. And I want to help people who have had issues similar to me. I mean, I've dealt with depression. I've dealt with anxiety. I've dealt with imposter experience. I've dealt with career challenges. I've been a career counselor for 20 years. And so if I could make my target clients to a level that I was comfortable and really start to learn and how to help those people, then I could, I didn't have to be an expert in everything. So, so if you feel that, you know, if you're, feeling like you can't start something new because you're not an expert, you might be in the throes of an imposter experience. And then we've talked about it quite a bit, but that feeling that you don't belong. It could be, we've talked about it being externally driven, but it also could be internally driven. So that's, that's a long answer to your question. Those, that's great though. I mean, you, you've said several things I'd love to, to, to kind of dive into actually. And I, I think this this hits the association industry, maybe, and and I've been an association professional a little over ten years now. And like most other association professionals, I'd say ninety five percent of us, we fell into it. You know, we were either a part of the industry that the association served, and we happened to find our way into, you know, a coordinator management role, some something that's sort of entry level in associations because it sounded fun, it looked interesting. There was a job opening, but none of us went to four-year or even two-year schools to be association professionals. That doesn't really exist. Some of us might come from nonprofit as well, which is a little similar, but I can totally see how this would you know, almost plague the association industry at an alarming rate because we don't really have the benchmarks per se to show we're on a career trajectory. It's just you know, we're, everyone has sort of approached it in their own unique way. Um, but to that point of can't start something new, I mean, there's so many opportunities in association management to, you know, uh, change roles, move into this department, work for this department. You see it all the time. But I, I imagine there's so many people afraid to do that because 
they haven't done it before. They don't know if they'll be good at it. I think, you know, you also, when you put the quotes, it, you know, over normal, what I heard you say is that I'm not normal. <laughs> um, kidding. What is normal? Right, right. Well, kidding aside, you know, if 82, up to 82% of us are experiencing it, it's, it's probably past time to actually normalize this experience, right? I mean, we're right. all, the majority of us are feeling it. So I'm curious if there are ways as employers, as employers are listening in, do you have suggestions for us who manage or supervise, um, who hire, who recruit, uh, for ways to address imposter syndrome? Um, a couple of things. I want to go back a second to what you said about how most of, of people in association work just kind of stumbled their way there and there's no degrees in that. Um, I, I don't, I used to know this statistic, but I don't remember it anymore. But the number of people that are still working within their major, like their undergrad major, I don't know, five to 10 years out of school is very, very small. So the vast majority of people leave their major and then just like you all did, you know, you, you make a connection and you fall into something. And so I want to normalize that for you all, that that's a very common thing. And, and, you know, looking at the transferable skills you have from your previous experience and looking how you can leverage those now, that may, may help a bit in terms of helping you realize that, yeah, I, I do have the skill to do this. I might not have done it within an association management organization, but I did it in the past. Um, you know, as far as ways that employers could address imposter syndrome, the first thing that popped into my head when you were talking just then is creating some sort of mentorship program. And maybe it's already there, but, you know, I, I could see something, you know, as a part of of your organization where you have people sign up to be mentors, sign up people to be mentees and connect them and, you know, have the mentors help the mentees. And again, normalizing that experience because the vast majority of mentors have had this. So that's that's one thing I would suggest because I know a lot of associations are really small. So, you know, maybe your umbrella organization could could do that for your for your members. A few things I, I thought I've thought of for what can employers do? Well, first, you know, there are still biases and, you know, looking at, you know, you, Chris, said that, you know, you're sitting at the table and you're a younger employee and, you know, being aware of those biases and, you know, are, are you, is the organization biased against women, biased against minorities, biased against young professionals? You know, really taking a, an honest look and asking those folks, asking women, asking minorities, asking younger employees, you know, how do they feel? Make an anonymous survey. Ask how they feel about being at the table, so to speak. The, the Not the actual table, but you know what I mean. So anyway, so that's one. And then a couple of things that I thought of, two of them are based in positive psychology techniques, and another one is based in a therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. And the first idea is called the order of the elephant. And it came from a Danish car company in, well, a Danish car company. And um, I read about it in the book, The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acor. And the idea is that they had a two foot stuffed elephant 
that any employee could give to another employee as a reward for doing something awesome. And so then it's sitting on that employee's desk and people walk by and they're like, hey, you got the elephant. What'd you do? And then that person can talk about this great thing that they did. Those stories get retold. The person feels good because they're telling the story more than once. And so that's one small thing that would cost just the cost of a stuffed elephant that that companies or organizations could potentially do. Another thing that comes from positive psychology, um, this comes from a study that was done between Harvard and KPMG back in 2008 when all the banks collapsed. And so KPMG is an auditing firm. And so those auditors, those managers were facing the most stressful time of their career at that point. And so Sean Acor divided the managers into two groups and had one group doing a specific set of exercises to try to keep their spirits high, their happiness high, um, their work performance high, their sense of belonging high. And and I won't go into the details of the study, but the what he prescribed for them absolutely boosted all of those numbers. And so a couple of the things to borrow from that is that an organization could encourage everyone to, when they get in in the morning, write in their gratitude journal. And I know everybody's heard about a gratitude journal, but it is the number one way of increasing your happiness. And when you are writing about something that you're grateful for and really thinking about it, not just, I'm grateful that my car got me to work, but really thinking about how awesome it is that you have a car that can get you to work. That programs your mind for for positivity for for the rest of the day. Um, another thing that can really boost people's spirits are writing a brief email every morning, thanking or praising someone on your team. Um, and this starts to build a new personal narrative. So whereas you know we've those of us that are dealing with imposter experience. Um, or have self-doubt and we're afraid of being found out and we get an email in the morning saying how great it was that we did something that builds that personal narrative and then finally something that's really low cost just the cost of a few books is you know very often imposter experience occurs alongside depression and anxiety and you could consider having a book club centering around a book called the happiness trap by russ harris and that is based in acceptance and commitment therapy. And it helps you be more accepting of the things that you can't change. There are, all, there are things in all of our lives that we can't change. You accept those things, which helps with the negative thoughts, helps with the accompanying depression and anxiety that often come along with imposter syndrome. And so with accepting that, it helps you then take committed action towards, because it frees you up, your brain space to take that committed action towards what you value as a person and what you value as an organization. So that's just a few ideas. Well, and I want to take a, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm jot, jotting down notes and I want to take a moment to express my gratitude for you being on our podcast today and sharing this wisdom and, and these insights and ideas because they're truly, you know, I love this elephant idea. I'm noodling on it in my mind as you're talking. I mean, how can we, you know, how can we as a culture, an organizational culture, promote this idea that we're 
we're celebrating one another, it doesn't have to come top down, right? It's sort of like peer-to-peer recognition, which is just, you know, it's so powerful and just makes you feel so good. You know, I think, and the email idea, I love that because I used to, and I need to get back into the habit. I used to write a handwritten note, not every day, but pretty regularly to a volunteer or to a donor, to a fellow staff member, someone who I wanted to just purely express gratitude for them being in the organization, a part of my life, a part of my work. And it felt so good for me to get that in the mail. And I would hear back from people, you know, that it just, it it was to open the mail that's constantly filled with bills and ads just to get a nice little handwritten note was um, so meaningful. So I appreciate the personal reminder that I need to get back to doing that. It's funny you bring that up because first of all, yes, getting a written thank you note, who gets those anymore? It's amazing to get those. They're the number one, well, no, sorry. One of the top three things that you can do to boost your happiness is doing something called a gratitude letter. And a gratitude letter is very similar to what you were talking about, but it's where you think of somebody who you, who, who has made a difference in your life and you write them a three to 400 word letter. And you don't just mail it to them. You deliver it to them and you read it to them out loud and you tell them that they can't say a word until you're finished. And so you read through this this letter saying what they've meant to you and, you know, just sharing, you know, heart to heart. And then when you're finished, you have a heart to heart conversation with them. And that has been proven to boost happiness for months afterwards, not only for the person writing, for the person receiving it. So that takes what your your old habit that you've gotten out of, which by the way is awesome. I love getting handwritten thing you notes and takes it up a notch in terms of boosting, boosting your happiness. Well, and and not to be pessimistic here, but I do wonder about, you know, kind of kind of entering that exercise. I mean, part of me wonders will will people feel this question that sort of plagues them of, well, why would this person want to hear from me? What value do I add to their life that's worth, you know, getting a 300 word essay, you know, read to them? But I think these are the types of questions that that plague us every day, right? It's sort of like, what value do we bring to our workplace, to others, to ourselves, to our loved ones, our partners? And I think, you know, I've heard you speak before and you've touched on, you, you, um, you touched on how to find and articulate that value. And so I want to just maybe, you know, ask a, a question for our listeners today. Could you share maybe any words of wisdom, advice, guidance for ourselves internally as we seek to, if we're seeking to find our own value in, in those spaces and how do we articulate that? Do we write it down? Do we make mental notes of it? Do we find ways to remind ourselves daily of that value that we bring? I mean, how do you suggest that we go about that for people who may struggle daily or, you know, regularly to say, what is my value in this particular space? Well, the first thing I would, I would back up just a second where you were talking about, you know, how if you were going to write that gratitude letter, you know, why would this person want to hear from me? Well, I think, I think the vast majority of us love helping others. And we love the idea, especially as we get older, if we find out that we made a difference in somebody's life, that that is so rewarding for the vast majority of people. So 
not worrying about the value that you bring to that person, but just the value that you bring to them is making them feel they've done something to help to help you and it's made a difference in your life. And that can be extremely rewarding for them. So I wouldn't sell yourself short on that. In terms of working with your, you know, recognizing your value that you have right now, you know, this is a way that I I help my clients start to get past an imposter experience. And that is, you know, looking at, and I, I talk about, you know, rewriting your personal narrative. Because when we're in the throes of imposter experience, again, we've got the self-doubt, find out as a frog, found, being found out as a frog, we don't belong, blah, blah, blah. To try to get out of that or in order to get out of that, start to rewrite your personal narrative. And I, I suggest that people do that by starting a list and writing about their strengths. So write all their strengths that they feel that they have, any special knowledge that they have, things that they've achieved, awards that they've won. Uh, good things that other people say about you. And if you've implemented the order of the elephant, that, that will feed into that. Personal traits that you like about yourself. And this is a list that you can keep adding to. And it's not enough just to make the list. You need to meditate if you're a meditator. Journal if you're a journaler. If you're neither, pick one. Uh, but on one each day. So pick a strength. Pick um, an achievement that you've done. Pick something and and either think about this or write about it. How has that strength, for instance, improved your life? How has it improved the lives of others? And how does it feel to use that strength? And really doing one of those each day, again, continuing to add to that list can really help you begin to change that that personal narrative. Those are those are fabulous suggestions. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing those. This is a uh, a little bit of an off script question, but we're talking about things that things that could help to battle this imposter experience. Things to start doing. I'm curious if you have any suggestions or things that people should consider they stop doing. So I'll use a, a, an example, and that is you, you hear a lot of times teachers. I come from the education industry. You hear a lot of teachers when they're asked, you know, what do, what do you do for work? They'll say, oh, I'm just a teacher. And um, there's been this push in the industry that teachers have to stop using that word just because it really minimizes the work that they pour their heart and soul into every day and the lives, the, the lives of community members, not just the children they teach, but community members that they're impacting. So that's just one example of, of you know, to stop using the word just. But do you have other suggestions for things that we do or, you know, say that we may not even know that we're doing or saying it that could help us to, could also help us to battle this imposter experience? Well, I feel like, and, 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 and I'm speaking for myself, I feel like an imposter experience is such an internal thing that anything that we're saying, we're kind of saying in our heads. And what I would suggest is borrowing a technique from acceptance and commitment therapy that's called diffusion. And the idea between dif- the, the idea be- behind <laughs> diffusion is that you are distancing yourself from thoughts that are not helpful. And so if you're having a thought like, you know, I'm I'm not good enough or whatever, you 
that's not a helpful thought. And so instead of ruminating about that, um, you put some words in front of it. And there's a lot of diffusion techniques, but one of the the simplest is I'm having the thought that I'm not good. I'm having thought that I'm not good enough because we look a lot of things that have no meaning in our lives. And so just, you know, changing this instead of I'm not good enough to that's just a thought I'm having right now. I notice I'm having the thought that I'm not good enough. And that allows you to distance yourself. You do that enough and, and you at some point you start naming it like that's my not good enough story. And so when you hear that come in your mind again, you say, oh, that's my not good enough story again. Thanks, mind. You like thank your mind for, for giving you. It's a little sarcastic. But, and then that allows you to distance from that so that you can act in accordance with what you value and what you want to do with your life. I, I love that suggestion. It takes it really takes the power away from that yes. thought. It 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 in our mind, it's truth. But we tell it then we're telling ourselves like this is just a thought we're having. I, I love right. that. Right. I love that. Thanks. Well, Nicole, I got to be honest, I, I bet I suspect this podcast is going to go viral because you have you have you have put into perspective and given insights and, and encouragement and, and strategies to overcome this experience that up to 82% of us are feeling every day. And, and so for that, I want to express my gratitude on behalf of all of us at ISAE. You know, it's been a true pleasure. I honestly, we could spend several more hours talking about this and I, I would love it. I would love it. Before we wrap up, I just want to be sure and ask, is there anything that you came to this podcast recording today to address or any advice to give um, people, uh, especially maybe people who are just starting out their careers in associations? Um, I don't think my advice would be any difference depending on industry, you know, just people starting out their careers. And, you know, that's, that's what I teach at Kelly. You know, I'm, I'm helping students launch their careers. And, and I think, you know, making sure that you ask questions and, you know, being open. And when you're, when you're feeling like the least experienced person in the room, looking at other people and looking at them as resources and just owning up to, you know, I'm new here. And, you know, just approaching them with curiosity can make you feel a lot more confident. So asking questions, approaching those that are are more experienced than you with curiosity can really help with that, with the confidence factor. So speaking of asking questions, if there are listeners today who are interested in talking to someone about this, maybe they feel they're experiencing it for the first time or they have additional questions, how could people get a hold of you? They can email me at Nicole, and it's spelled with an H. So Nicole at Cardinal, Cardinal like the bird, counselingconsulting.com. Awesome. Happy to, happy to help. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed. We hope everyone enjoyed. We, we know. We know you enjoyed this episode of You Should Hear This. If you have any questions you'd like answered or future topics that you'd like us to explore, please send us an e- email at info at isae.org. 